Hello and welcome to another episode of Quarks Talks where I talk about anything and everything of interest to me whether that be political, economic, social, technological, legal, environmental, cultural, you name it. And today's episode is a review episode of an exhibition I attended and it was at the Tate Britain. It was called Life Between Islands and it basically documented Afro-Caribbean artists and native indigenous Caribbean artists and their relationship with European spaces, particularly Britain, but also other countries as well. And I mean, it was really enlightening. Like, I really enjoyed it. It's one of those exhibitions where you, you, you feel overwhelmed because there's so much content to devour but I had the time, luckily, to, like, really indulge as opposed to, like, using it as a as a walkthrough. I, I had moments that I had to study each image and the provenance with um, the information and the inspiration behind the names and colours and background of the artist. And, my Lord, how many different forms did these art pieces take it was very transformative it was your typical you know paper collier paper graphite crayon watercolor but it extended to sculpture and um um, even um metals and airplane chairs everything you could imagine that you would not consider as traditional art in terms of you know visual paintings was there and just to name a few I I I I'm the kind of person who like I have no reservations when it comes to expression like I feel like things should be um as honest as possible even if it's hard to see and I can't see at that moment I want someone to tell that story because Otherwise, we'd be dealing with an erasure of history, especially in this day and age. And I rec- I recognise um, the Sonia Boyce piece in particular, as I remember attending a couple of years ago, um, a, a, I think it was a mini exhibition. I can't remember where it was, but I can tell you, like, um, what, where, where it was located. It was definitely central London. It was called the No Colour Bar, right? And it had an image of Sonia Boyce's painting called She Ain't Holding Them Up, She's Holding On, Some English Rose. I remember going there because I was with two of my friends who weren't really into art, but I was just, like, curious to go to Central London with them, and I thought we would pop by. And um, at the time, I didn't really appreciate this piece. I think it was, like, five, six years ago, maybe even seven years ago. Um, I didn't understand what it represented. I didn't realise how much this image would basically go on to define a lot of my life and the lives of women around me, black women around me, because it is a woman who is clearly, I would say, young, right, early 20s, maybe even teenager, who is carrying her family. Um, and when I say her family, I mean her mother, father, and two younger siblings on her shoulders so it's kind of like that eldest daughter burden that we hear a lot of people speak about me I'm not an eldest daughter I'm the middle child but um it was this idea of 
the younger generation, the woman, is carrying the elders up as per Caribbean culture. And this is also a theme in many African cultures. But when I read the provenance of it, I was even more intrigued because it has um, a explanation. And the explanation was that um, Sonia Boyce's uh, title of she ain't holding them up, she's holding on, is basically a reference to holding on to your culture. So it was a metaphor and not necessarily... um, a, um, a cling to life which is what I presumed it was you know the holding on I thought sometimes you know people don't know their purpose but if they look to their family then they say okay at least this is why I'm here but she apparently meant it in a different way but you know these things have dual and multi multifaceted meaning so the some English rose part of that title is in brackets so it's kind of like a mockery uh, tongue-in-cheek and actually actually the protagonist in the piece is wearing a dress with a black rose on it and they actually illustrated that in the information box about how you know the fact that the rose is black and it's some English rose it's like again a subversion of you know these dainty English women who are considered considered symbols of beauty to be protected versus these black women who are seen as strong and and the heads, head and shoulders of, of many black households. And um, my Lord, I wish I could name every single person in this exhibition, but I just can't. Um, what I can do is name a few people who really caught my eye. And um, Horace Ove was one of the particular paint, um, fo- 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 I can't even speak, photographers, because it wasn't just paintings, it was photographers, it was, like I said, sculptors, it was many um, pieces that actually were audiovisual as well, uh, movies and sounds that were really intentionally trying to make you question placement and displacement. I remember seeing a clip of one of the films called Dreaming Rivers, and that was an explosion of like expectation for a black woman who has fetched her daughter and I think the daughter in this um movie was actually I can't remember her real name but Yolande from EastEnders it looks like her when she was young I think it was her um talking about how she went to fetch her daughter but she's gone on to have other kids and these other kids are like mixed race and white and it's like it's something that I've been talking to my friend about like I think we don't realize that so many of the people and so many of the artists that had actually made their pieces came to Europe came to Britain in the effort to learn but not necessarily live and the the discrimination they faced was so insurmountably large that they were inspired to create art because of it. And the effort that was made to document this story correctly, thoroughly, richly, like there was even one room where it was literally um, a room stylized as the room of an Afro-Caribbean who 
is the daughter of someone who considered Britain or the son, daughter or son or non-binary child of someone who considered Britain as the mother country, right? Who came to Britain as, as essentially a British citizen and having to create their own identity only in their own room, only in their house, in their front room in particular, where there's like glass cabinets and and um, glass fish, uh, like ceramic and these tiled walls and these garish carpets just the color it felt like I had stepped into the 1960s and I even heard one woman comment like this is exactly how I grew up she was an Afro-Caribbean woman who was probably like you know in her 70s and there were many elderly people there so that was really nice to see that they were engaged with this because this is probably something they lived through you know um and it's not just a a documentary for them I mean I saw names that I've recognised, like Liz Johnson Arthur and Angelica Akunyili Crosby, um, so, and even Lubaina Hamid, who I saw retrospective of a few weeks ago, but there were so many names, so many names like Claudette Johnson and Barbara Walker, and um, I'm trying to remember, oh my god, so many names and accompanying poems, you know, I saw Derek Walcott being mentioned there and that made me extremely happy to see that because I think sometimes um, people don't realise how much these images are based on words a lot of the time, words by other individuals, words by the painter themselves, it's almost never just a demonstration of um, what they see, it's also what they've heard or what they've read and that's a nice focus that I feel like we need to get closer to and um, just to be as specific as I can be, I'm going to quickly get the pamphlet that I got from the event so I can really delve into some of what I saw in as much detail as possible so give me a moment I'm just going to pause this podcast and then resume all right I'm back and by no means is this like a complete definitive list of all the individuals whose art I saw but this is just a small uh, excerpt of individuals so there were brothers Horace Ove, Zach Ove, Ad, I can't even, I'm always thinking Adar because of Ghana, Um, Ada and Patterson she had some incredible pieces, Ingrid Pollard really enjoyed her pieces, Blue Curry, Eddie Chambers, Paul Dash, Peter Doig, Joy Gregory, Claudette Johnson, incredible, Um, and even, trying to remember, seeing um, Alberta Whittle um, and Ron Ware, there were just so many particular pieces, that I was like, oh my god, how do people even conceive these kind of things in their minds? Like, you know, you kind of see just amazing art pieces, just like, how does someone design that? But, again, like I said, people are being inspired by what they see, and there was a lot of provenance on the black arts movement really, you know, surging into um, the mainstream or into eminence in the, I think it was the 70s and 80s. The Caribbean arts movement was a huge wave of political and social and cultural thought and theory being put into what would 
often just be considered for some people leisure but actually told a story that often went beyond that was much richer than what any writer can conceive in the most poetic of prose and that's why I guess literature really but well marries with the visuals if done correctly you can build a whole storyline and I remember saying this to like my Black Freedom Struggle seminar leader about like you know the importance of Zora Neale Hurston who is seen as this particularly important figure in terms of historically representing a side of black country life that often many people denigrated because they said it was southern it was poor it was dark it was black no one wants to speak to that no one wants to read that everyone wants to be respectable everyone wants to be aspirational everyone wants to get out of the hood essentially no one wants to hear about the story about the person who stayed in the hood right but that's why I really enjoyed like you know your beloved by Toni Morrison you know as opposed to um the bluest eye right it's a case of knowing that there are different markets to to appeal to but um it's your choice what you dabble in and don't let anyone make you feel like you shouldn't or should do a certain type of art or, or commercial um creativity because sometimes it's not popular today but it will be popular in 50 years and 60 years you know there were so many points as i was reading and there were so many groups of um individuals who came together and tried to make like leagues and movements and and um, and and um coalitions basically of blackness to represent um these thoughts in the most organized manner um and a lot of them don't exist anymore it, it reminds me of like how the turnover in particular of of black businesses in general is very hard to, to, to sustain it's usually very quick in terms of turnover because you're fighting against people who have been around for decades and decades and decades but then I remind myself that for a lot of these people they were finding spaces and coalitions to represent themselves for the time that they were around you know and whether they knew or whether they wanted it to to exceed them is a whole nother story I really hope that all the organizations we have today continue to survive you know we've got the voice Black Ballad, Galdem, um, Navarra Media, like these places so often because people are underfunded just can't continue but I'm hoping that people really understand that these spaces are imperative. I think of like the incident of Child Q which I haven't mentioned on this podcast at all because honestly it's too triggering a story to even engage with but to look at Black Ballad's front page and to see that they had a section on career and education and schools and some of the pieces about getting rid of police officers in schools date back to 2020 before the child queue situation was even enlightened. That tells you how important journalism is. That tells you how important investigative journalism is even when things haven't hit the forefront or the mainstream or the public eye or public opinion because these these events are still happening under our radar and they creep up in times of turmoil you know like the unemployment rate amongst black and african black african um black caribbean and asian populations has always been lower than whiter counterparts however 
the pandemic just amplified that. What happens is, is that you get events that amplify very existent um, discrimination or inequalities and often make them worse. But it's important to always be, again, essentially ahead of the game in that respect because it might not matter right now or it might not seem like um, that important a piece right now, but it always becomes a point of contention in a few years. Always, always. The thing that you thought wasn't relevant comes to creep up on you. And then you wonder, oh my God, how are we going to get through this? Or why didn't I know this earlier? Why didn't I pay attention earlier? Because when you're facing strife or turmoil, it's often a catalogue of failures that have led to this huge event in your life. It's never just the one major accident. You know, that's not as common. But we don't pay attention to the little things until they accumulate. So in going to this and seeing how many people were inspired by their African heritage, their um, Amerind- Amerindian or indigenous heritage, you know, there were so many pieces that spoke about carnival and, and even the police presence at carnival. And I think to myself, wow, like this is an event that in our present society is denigrated and seen as something as uh, hypersexualized and and violent and and non-representative of its true origins, which was of heritage and resistance and never letting up, you know, and 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 seeking the um, the the gods. It was there was a lot of religious sentiment. In, in the pieces I saw that focus away from, you know, the monotheistic Abrahamic religions and, and went into what many have considered inter- indigenous practices that unfortunately have probably been significantly undermined as a result of, you know, colonisation and genocide and disease, etc. But those are huge focus in particular on Guyana which was really interesting because Guyana as a country is very diverse um, in terms of ethnic makeup but we don't often hear the indigenous stories because they've got um, a wave of Indian people from Asia and African descended people and there's conflicts between ideologies and to see how different individuals represent that heritage um, was really gratifying to me. You learn something when you're looking at paintings of people, like something that took hours and hours and hours, you get to absorb in one moment. And I try not to like make quick assessments on people's art because I know it takes effort and time and sometimes if you don't understand it, it just might not be for you. But the exhibition was um, unconsciously talking about the Immigration Act. It was unconsciously talking about decolonization and independence and slavery and colonialism and oral history, which is like a huge thing for me because as a Ghanaian, I know how much we like to talk, but I also know how so many stories of things like... um, trickster 
gods or symbols like you know Anansi have traveled across so many types of waters um as as is it Langston Hughes calls it one of there's a there's a particular cultural or 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 um social theorist who calls it the black Atlantic like this organized black identity um that diasporans used to connect to one another and in knowing I forgot what I was going to say let me just keep talking and in knowing that um our heritages are interlinked but also very different is 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 it is important is important because we don't like to see we don't like to acknowledge the distinctions between us because um you know people say that you know you divide and you conquer but i don't think there's anything wrong with recognizing that you know these these individuals are not the same as those individuals there are overlaps and their identities feed one another or um, mirror one another, but they're not the same. Oh, I just remembered what I was going to say. Yes, oral histories being so significant to me as a Guardian person and, like, making a podcast. It becomes suddenly a cultural or radical act because you're documenting things in the same way your ancestors did, which was to talk about it, right? Because not everyone could write. And and that's why symbols were such a huge thing. You know, you look at, you know, it's you a dinkra or whatever else that we use to symbolize different themes of life or different purposes and we wonder you know why use this hair comb or why use this heart or why use these um shapes you could just write a word like what we do in the uk but sometimes signs are not sometimes signs are always universal you know that person might not be someone who can read but they can acknowledge a sign and know that it says stop or go. You know, the traffic light system is mostly known in every country because we all know what red red means, we we all know what yellow means, and we all know what green means. And these are colours, and even the red, yellow, green colours, the tricolour, as they called it in one of the pieces, is represented in a piece about, I think it was Guyana. And um, again, it was like these symbols, these emblems that are seen in multiple cultures but might mean something a little bit different to one person as opposed to the other was really good in helping me like discern who and what makes a community, a country um, and how this mixes with um, the popular culture I know of, which is books. So, you know, I had, there was a piece about... um, uh, Dennis Williams um, images that he had made that were used as the cover for George Lamming George Lamming's books like The Emigrants or um, In the Cast of My Skin and it reminds me of you know Toyin Oji Odotola who had her own pieces used as to cover I think it was Kayo Chingoni but I might be wrong I know her her pieces were used to cover someone else's books and it's like that riptide I love it that riptide of multiple black people being um, used in different ways to tell one story so it's like okay a black book 
or book with black characters can now employ black actors and then black actors can introduce black music and then black music can then get black um producers and then black producers can create black screenwriters and then black screenwriters create black makeup artists and then it's like costume designers and then the knock-on effect and it just enriches we all enrich and bleed into one another and suddenly you've got a meta effect suddenly we're in community and we're, we're making things move and we don't know how else to do it but to put one another on because who else is going to be able to tell that segment of the story than another black individual who's ever already dealt with it or has some experience with it in some kind of way you know and um I wanted to take that um spirit with me and obviously it leaves me sometimes you know I've been watching the um Netflix documentary Joan Didion The Center Will Not Hold and I'd heard of Joan Didion but I'm not like a particular um, I don't want to say I'm not a fan, I just haven't read her work. But I've seen her stuff, I think I might have even seen it on Literary Hub, and I'm aware of like what she writes about. And she's someone who's seen as quite sombre, so, someone who's quite, I don't even want to say negative, but solemn, you know. It gives me, not quite Sylvia Plath, but yeah, definitely quite solemn. And um, when I'm watching her, and hearing her speak, she's making writing seem like an event like even when she was going through grief through her um dealing with the passing of both her husband and her daughter within a short amount of time she still found an opportunity to write and what that meant was expression and healing and we don't get that enough like because we're so much in the fast life of trying to achieve and succeed we don't get those moments where we're just where we're just like I just want to chill. I want to do something. Um, I want to say something, and I don't want it to be these um, get rich quick schemes or these um, these outpourings of emotion that don't get met with enough support. Because I feel like in our day and age, people are really looking for community, right? And there's been a huge breakdown in support networks across the country, across race, across caste, across class, everything, like, everybody seems to be suffering in some kind of way, and some people are doing it privately, and some people are doing it publicly, but my only issue is, is that if we don't meet those needs, then it just sounds like we're at a, at, at a loss, like, at a universal loss, like, we're all flopping, because if there's so many people that are complaining, that means something is not working. The success rate is not here. So when I'm seeing or reading things in the news and learning history, and I'm not, I'm not reacting to it. I'm just taking it in. It's not coming from a space of not caring. If anything, it's quite the opposite. I'm engaging and I'm learning because I want to know how to emerge from it. I want to be solution oriented. But when I look back at history, I see, wow, this has been done before. We've we've tried this and it didn't work. Like even the event with Child Q, right? And Black Ballad already covering it. And then this, that's why this exhibition is actually so timely because they they were speaking about police violence and the rate of stop and search, right? And now we know it's being introduced in schools. It's this constant, constant um, matter of, 
denigrating the black form and dehumanizing the black form into what they call the commodity and that even reminds me of our of my um comparative law essay where i spoke about you know um it was an inquiry into the legal pluralism of the sovereignty of ghana and it spoke about how ghana went from a place that people looked for individuals to become commodities um and had land that was subsisting to support the land and um, to support the people and then it kind of turned on its head so what ended up happening is that the people became customers in you know the expanding liberal marketization of higher education in the west and then the land became a source of commodity for individuals to develop cash crops and that same terminology that same vernacular was was seen in this um exhibition which made me feel really affirmed in what i'd already written and submitted and got a first class for by the way but um made me say to myself okay i'm on the right track because this has been said before and we unfortunately haven't been able to resolve it but what you're constantly seeing is this transition from humanity into what they describe as commodity and they talked about being on the auction block and going into the ships and then going on the plantation and this uniform um outcome of no longer being a human being you know you've taken a name you've taken someone physically away from their land you've forced people to work and then you haven't paid them how of course you're gonna feel worthless how can you expect someone to construct self-esteem and historically they've been undermined for so long and then you just tell them you know, if you read enough books you'll believe in yourself when the world doesn't affirm them and and we don't seek to even redress that harm with some talk of redistribution compensation reparation it's just you know now get on with it come on that's like the um base of tort law um compensating people who have experienced damage but no like for some reason it's like black people are not entitled to that african people are not entitled to that indigenous people are just not entitled to that and even one of my lecturers asked us all about what we thought about afro-pessimism and afro-pessimism is not like a a school of thought or theory that i've read too deep into but i'm aware of its bare bones and i felt like to some extent afro-pessimism is true but i just wonder if it's a bit of a race to the bottom in terms of like who's the most oppressed type thing like a girl that i am in um class with mentioned like she knows as the oppression olympics and i was like that's exactly the same as i know it in terms of like how social media has kind of um simplified it but at its core and at its um depth it's a genuine school of thought that has a lot of merit in my opinion because it's just not coincidence that this theme of anti-blackness pervades every culture underpins a lot of discrimination or otherization of minorities and how few of us have um, been able to reckon with that because it's a scary um conclusion and i feel like we try to evade as much as we can particularly when you live in the west because you know you're not 
that bad you know you're not as bad as the person who's still in Africa who doesn't have the western education that you have who doesn't has the who doesn't have the western affiliation that you have so it has its layers and we can get to the the, the bottom of it if we, if we really want to but right now I want to focus on like what I saw in this exhibition because it was an exploration of self but in the most political of terms you know as soon as you're as a black as a black person in the UK you might not realize it but you are a product of immigration and that's a political topic whether you like it or not like you are a politicized figure and these themes of religion and sexuality and and fabric and color did they will like they they won't leave you they won't leave you unless you decide to leave them we don't understand that like the attire that we wear and the hair that we have on our head and even the fact that there were pieces that quite literally just had things like mops and wigs and things that you would not expect to be art shows you how inconsequential art can be like it doesn't even have to be intentionally out there saying you know this is something to behold this is something to uh, be expensive and pay for and gawk at it's just about being you know it's like that black person minding their business and everyone's saying oh my god you've got the best hair you've got the best skin it's like you become an artifact you are an artifact and you don't even realize it you might not even want it but it's an inevitability and seeing, I mean, I've always felt like Afro-Caribbean people have contributed so much to the UK, like, to the point, oh, it's like, it's scary how much they've dealt with as basically the first en masse black population um, in Britain. Um, and for them to face all those discriminations and then to kind of 20 years later be denigrated as this, I'm not even saying kind of, um, but factually be denigrated as this subclass of human and subclass of black to the point where even other Africans felt some measure of superiority over them is a scary and slippery slope. And it shows you the cultural amnesia. It shows you the cognitive dissonance. It shows you how poor our history is uh, or deliberately evasive our history is in telling our truths because we're not, walking in a way that honours or or draws fruit in the truth of who we are and, and where we come from and why we're able to get the opportunities we have, you know. It's, it, for me, it's really a case of, and as straightforward as it sounds, um, it's the Afro-Caribbean people walking or crawling so that Africans could run. You know what I mean? And then having that standing on someone else's shoulders kind of theme and forgetting that you're standing on someone else's shoulders speaks to a true disservice of our education system or deliberate omission that can't run because all that will happen is the next generation of people that come who then get to stand on the backs of the second-generation Africans will then not know all the sacrifices their ancestors or their um, parents, parents, parents made.
which is extremely scary, right? Because we, to some extent, in Britain, have a huge reverence for who came before, to the point whereby history is one of the most respected degrees you can get, you know? You want to know what came before, whether that be the Romans, the Tudors, the Greeks, um, whomever, the, the, the monarchy, Everyone wants to know who came before in Britain because it dictates who comes in the future. But at this point in time where the cost of living is at its highest, right, since God knows they've recorded it in the 1950s, whether it's fuel prices and energy prices and wages not going up, but everything else becoming more expensive, we start to worry about, okay, where have we seen this before? And then you look at an exhibition like this and it's like, oh, right here, and they were overcrowding black people in the States and making it hard for them to get jobs and maintain some level of 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 decency and 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 um I was gonna say class, but not even class in the socio-political sense. I mean identity, you know, you'll see someone who might not have any particular job to go to, dress very well, and you're like, why? And it's like, because it makes them feel good. It makes them feel good. It, it gets them somewhere. And there were some, like, mocking pieces that I really enjoyed, like marble of monarchs with headdresses that were clearly made for very cheap items, like, you know, beads, both, like, mixtures of African elements, so, like, cowrie shells, and then, again, the cheap items, like, brass um, or coloured metal and then that being like a mockery of the crown jewels that we see many of the monarchs wear and bear in mind we're existing at a time where um, Barbados has become a republic and Jamaica is intending to follow suit and hopefully there's a domino effect across the whole Caribbean because the monarchs of Kate and um, Will William are walking around trying to, you know, uphold their <laughs> their um, monarchy duties, and the country, the world is pushing back against these systems, um, slowly but surely. And we need one person to do it to kind of establish that it can be done until others follow suit. It's very hard to create a future that you can't even env- envision. That's why I guess so much of what people talk about now is about reimagining. It's important because you only see what can happen within the remits of your understanding, right? We don't know that someone can go to space until someone decides, no, I want to go to space and I want to figure it out. We don't know you can make a phone that's as small as a hand until someone decides to do it. And that takes a lot of invention. That takes a level of delusion that most of us don't have because everyone's told to be realistic and be practical and be honest and, well... I'm not sure how long it's taking us and how long it will continue to take us until we're far gone from these ideas of what we can do and just deciding what we should do and what we should try. Because at least if I or you can't do it, then someone else can take up the mantle and follow through, which I think is what my um, go-to... uh, focus is, you know, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I want to write in my journal, but my eyes are blurring, and I'm just like, why am I taking all these 
long journeys why am i putting my body through so much strain and strife trying to attend as many cultural events as possible but but life is short like and we don't know how much time we have it's not about oh i'm getting old it's about how much time you have left it could be one day could be one year could be one decade could be one century we've got to keep moving we've got to do as much as we can in this lifetime what is the point of being idle yes you're tired you're always gonna be tired by the time you're going you go in bed you won't even fall asleep might as well work like that's the way i see it and we're taking a lot of brunt from older generations as to who we should be and where we should go but I feel like this particular documentary is an ex- I keep saying documentary this particular exhibition is an is example of um, even when you don't know where you're going you should still represent who you are and try to understand it because someone might be able to bring some clarity which will help you um, And and we're not going to get there as singular individuals. We will get there in groups if we allow ourselves to. And I am one of the people who um, who's definitely um, not that good at collaborating with others because of my own anxieties and my own weird aff- affectations. But I will be the first to say that community drives the people forward before any kind of capitalistic identity or individualism. We do have to collaborate. We do have to move forward. We do have to work as a team and we can never stop that. So this if you exhibition this exhibition, if you do get the opportunity to go and view it, please do I beg. It's phenomenal. It's something that you have to take like Honestly, I think I'd spent about I could have spent three hours there, but I only spent two and a half. Um, that's how unique, that's how rich it is. Like if you look at every piece for ten minutes, I mean you'll be there for about three hours. There's lots of pieces. So whether you're gonna skim through it or not, you need to know there's a lot to take in. It's not a walkthrough type because there's so many different artists to be represented. There's just so much more than um what you expect from an exhibition of just one individual. So highly, 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 highly encourage um, anyone listening to this to please um, go to this event. I remember going to events years ago, right? First event I think I went to was like Barbican Centre State of London debate with Sadiq Khan because my history teacher at sixth form recommended it to me and then from there I just became super intrigued by all of these arts and culture centres I did not know existed before that day that she gave me that ticket and then started started going to many and then I've been to uh, see Claudia Ranking at the University of Arts London which is actually right next to Tate Britain. I've seen Faith Ringgold at Serpentine Gallery Toyin Ojiodatola at the Barbican. That was a countervailing, a countervailing theory. That was our first time there. I've seen Lynette Yadonboachi, Lebena Hamid. Um, I never got to see Zanelle Muboli. There's so many. Like I'm trying to remember everyone. I tend to usually see black women's art, but there's pl- plenty of others who people can have a visit and look at, and plenty of others I seek to find and look at because I just feel like there's way too much going on in the culture for us to not know and to just be like I'm not sure like there's nothing not to be sure about 
we're, we're in an age where there's too much content to absorb and I'm, I'll be the first to say that I am a true fan of the culture. I am a true fan, I am a true fan of the people then. I want us all to win. I want us all to flourish. I want us all to fly. But we're getting to a point whereby we're not appreciating um, these art pieces because, well, they're zooming by. We've got so much at our fingertips and we're quick to critique, but we're not going, but we're not, we're not going to applaud and and really interrogate um, engagements in a, a genuine, constructive manner, not just an offhand, I hate him, I hate her manner. You know, we want to be thorough and we want to be honest. And I feel like, for me, this is a fantastic forum because I'm just able to speak at length. But if it is going to be on the record and in a public space on social media or on an interview, it should be done with care and some level of authority um, before we just start talking things you know and um yeah I think that is it I'm exhausted but I've got so much I've got so much to do I need to figure out my diary and my schedule tomorrow but I've had a long day like I've been up and down so I need to like give myself a small break clear out a few things do a little mini blog on my I have a little app called Daily Bean which is like uh, um, an opportunity for me to just document my days with like little images and comments about what I've done and um, how I feel. And it's always great to just reflect, um, thinking about, you know, what did I eat and what did I wear and did I enjoy myself and... I'm never I, I will I will always like do this. It will always be my thing. Um because we're never gonna get to a point whereby things are gonna be perfect. Like the world is always gonna be in turmoil. So it's important to um document life as richly as possible in the way that we see as as fun. I I used to feel a way, you know, um, that I, um, I keep saying that, I'm sorry, that I had certain enjoyments that probably seem really strange to others, like, I would love to spend my whole day in the Tate Britain if I didn't have other stuff to do, and that made me feel weird for a while, but I saw other people that looked just like me there, so it makes me feel affirmed that I am not as strange as I think I am, and, um, yeah, we'll, you'll get there in terms of, you know, connecting with more people. But I do like to be independent in these events just because it, it gives me a real chance to immerse myself in a way without answering questions. But also I feel like someone to bounce off of would be great for engagement. You know, I will never pretend like that. That's not significant to me because it definitely, definitely is. But... um yeah, just documenting my day with random events will always be fantastic. I had a very expensive meal at the Tate. The sausage roll, I had the sausage roll, but not squash and like a little salad. And that was actually good. But I can't believe I spent like £5.50 on a slice of chocolate cake. Like, and it, 
and the chocolate cake did not cure cancer. I'll tell you that, like, ain't a reason why chocolate would cost that much. But, um, yeah. I don't wanna be, be without you, be without you. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. I'm trying to add these photos, but my phone won't let me. By the way, the best, I think the best artist I saw was Liz Bryce. She was fantastic. Like she had these really seductive images that were just designed from the female gaze as opposed to the male gaze that were um very queer and um emancipatory. I really like really enjoyed those particular images. So I might drop the name in um um I will drop the name in the lovely description box when I have time to edit this podcast. But in the meantime, please do engage and look forward to my next episode, which will probably be a review of Small Island, um, which is a theatre show that I'm going to see at the National Theatre with my friend. And then in a couple of weeks, I'll also be going to see Kay Tempest, a musician. And um, I might even go to see Van Gogh. The immersive experience like there's just so much stuff to do so we are going to do that and do as much as possible i think i even have another one i think this is another event but i i have to uh, manage that with my workload so again we're squeezing events in but we're trying to find um ways to debrief and relax and decompress after these stressful learning and application moments so yes we shall see what happens in the meantime we are going to sleep and um we will listen to you later when i say we i mean me so yes thank you take care bye